Well, once again, thank you for being here as we are looking at Genesis as the prototype, the beginning type, the beginning shadow, the beginning work of God's anticipating the recovery of what he did in Genesis 1 and 2. And we've already been through several things this morning. We're going to begin to <clears throat> look at the three major types or shadows that God uses throughout the Old Testament to anticipate our redemption through the seed of the woman. We're going to begin to look at these three as we progress over the next few weeks. And why, again, do we say shadows or types? You remember in Hebrews chapter 1, the Holy Spirit begins the presentation like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. And so what we need to remember is that when we look at the Old Testament, we are looking at actual history. We're not looking at a parable. We're not looking at an allegory. We're not looking at a myth, nor are we looking at a legend. We are looking at actual historical activity in which God is present and is moving and is using people and circumstances for the purpose of bringing about the culmination of what he began in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, which was, if you would, thwarted or set aside in Genesis chapter 3 through sin. And then after that, God begins to persistently move toward the completion of his goal. Why? Because once God begins something, God always finishes that which he begins. You remember that's what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. He who has what? Begun a good work in you. What is that good work? Your salvation. Will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So that which God begins... He does complete. And so what we see, as I said, in the Old Testament, and I've said it a hundred times, but I'm going to say it much more, is that God uses symbols, types, shadows. All of these people and these events and these circumstances, all of this history to unfold, to give greater growing progressive revelation, explanation, as he moves toward the completion of his great goal of dwelling with man upon the earth as his sanctuary. And so we begin to see some of this today in a greater way. Father, as we move this morning through your word, Father, would you give us, as you always do, would you give us your favor? Would you give us not your presence because you're always with us, but Father, would you give us the outpouring of your presence in a very particular, very specific, very effective way by your Spirit. Father, manifest yourself to us this morning. Father, as we go through this, Father, would you cause the light of revelation to be going off in our minds and our hearts? Father, would you cause illumination and the enlargement of the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ to shine upon the pages of this book which we call the Old Testament so that we can see your mighty hand. Father, so that we can see in this Bible one message, 
one God who has one purpose through one message to bring about his goal. Father, would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. These types, as we talked about, these types or these shadows are going to show us the identity of God's Redeemer, and they're going to show us how this seed of the woman will redeem us. You remember in Genesis chapter 3.15, after the fall, after sin, in Genesis 3.6, Adam ate, the Lord brought a curse, the sin, he pronounced a curse on the, the world because of sin. But in the midst of the curse, he says, but there's coming a redeemer. I'm going to set enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And in this enmity, in this clash, in this opposition, the seed of the woman is going to be bruised. His heel is going to be bruised. He's going to get wounded. But as a result of this clash, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So there's coming a redeemer. And so these types that we will begin to see all point to one man. They all point to one man and the work of one man. And we need to make sure that we see that very clearly and specifically as we move through the Old Testament. What is all this stuff about? <clears throat> what are the festivals about? What is Leviticus about? What is Deuteronomy about? What is all this stuff about? It's about the identification of one man and the work of this one man to recover God's purpose through mankind. Remember, this one man is called by, uh, by the Apostle Paul the last Adam, through whom God will restore all things according to his intention. Listen to what Colossians 2.17 says about this last Adam, about the Lord Jesus. They, he says this, these are shadows or these are types of things to come, but the substance or the fullness or the fulfillment belongs to Christ. So as we said, I think either in the first or second lesson, when we look at Genesis, and not only in Genesis, but when we look at the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, we must see the entire Testament within the frame or the context or through the glasses of its fulfillment being in Christ. So that's what Colossians 2.17 tells us. All of these were types and shadows. But the fullness, what God is after in all of these types and shadows, is to tell us the identity and tell us not only who this man is, but how he goes about redeeming us. Who he is and how he does it. And what will be the result? This man who is coming will be what Adam was supposed to be. Remember in the mandates of 128 and 215, Adam was supposed to be prophet priest and king we won't go back into the details you'll just have to go back in some of the lessons Adam is to be God's prophet priest and king as he represents God's rule and takes that rule from the garden and to spread it throughout the world through the generations that are to come from Adam and through Adam's obedience this is what is supposed to happen so the earth will be God's dwelling place his sanctuary among men but this one man who's coming will fulfill all that and let me just whet your appetite for showing you or reading to you the result of what this one man and his work will accomplish. In Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3, 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Remember the garden? Remember the garden? This is the fulfillment. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The Old Testament shows us how we get to this place and who takes us to that place. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is where God is going. That is what the Old Testament is about. The progressive move of God toward the fulfillment which we see in Revelation 21 and 22. The first two chapters of the Bible tell us what God intends to do. The last two chapters in the Bible tell us the result of what God has done. Isn't it amazing? And so between Genesis 1-2 and Revelation 21-22, we have the entire panoply of what God is doing. Can you say amen? Not to me, but to God's revelation. Amen? What a revelation this is. So let's talk this morning. How will this man restore us? How is he going to do it? Well, the first revelation or the first statement of how this man will restore us is in Genesis chapter 3, 21. The altar becomes the first of the three major types through which God will make his intention completed. It will be the altar. Let's read what Genesis 3.21 says. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin. Remember, they had trucked on off after they ate of the fruit and were hiding in the vegetable patch, having clothed or covered themselves with fig leaves, the works of their hands. They had covered themselves. And so the Lord comes, begins to call Adam in verse 9. Adam, where are you? Begins to elicit from Adam a revelation or a confession of his sin of his need and then the lord in chapter verse 21 covers them god made his garments of skin and clothed them what was he doing he was covering their guilt by the death of an innocent there we see the pattern right there is the pattern the central way it is the heart of how god will redeem his people through the seed of the woman so these two will come together in one person the seed of the woman a man will come and his central work will be the his death for the innocent I'm sorry, for the guilty, the innocent dying for the guilty, so that in his death the sin of the guilty may be propitiated, may be overcome, may be paid for so that God will forgive us and bring us back into a relationship of his people which we see in Revelation 21 and 22. See this is the reason for the prominence of the altars beginning in Revelation after the fall that we see in Genesis. So immediately after the fall and after the couple is expel, expelled from the garden, you remember they're put out of the garden, the, flaming, the, uh, the angel with the flaming sword is put at the entrance of the garden. Why? So they may not partake of the fruit of the tree of life so that they cannot can eat of that fruit and become eternal beings and live forever. So they were expelled from the garden. And immediately the first thing we see 
as far as the revelation of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.21 is an altar in chapter 4. Now, it's there explicit, implicitly, rather, and it's not stated explicitly, but it is there. Beginning in chapter 4, the altar is referenced 12 times in Genesis, implicit in Genesis 4, and then it is explicitly mentioned 11 times after Genesis chapter 4. So what happens in chapter 4? Now we're going to see what we're talking about this morning. The altar will be just the first of three types of revelation that God will use to give us a progressive revelation and understanding of the work of the Redeemer and what does this work entail and what does it include and what is its result. So we will see that progression. This morning we talk about the altar as the beginning of that work having to do primarily with the most central part which is the shedding of blood so Genesis 4 records the account of two kinds of sacrifices remember one is accepted one isn't Abel's sacrifices of an animal Cain's is of the fruit of the field now some will argue it's because it was just not the best or whatever I think because of Genesis 3:21 I think because of the type of the blood shedding is throughout the Old Testament it has to do with Cain's refusal to not shed blood that is my opinion on that you may differ others may differ but what Hebrews says is this in Hebrews 4 Abel by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice through which he was commended as righteous now look at that Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice, what? By faith, by which he was commended or accounted or credited as righteous. Very important there. In the rest of Genesis, the altar is mentioned ten different times. I'm not going to read all the scriptures there because hopefully, you know, do you have them listed in your... uh, in your notes, the ten references to the altar. Let me just read a couple. Then Noah, remember in 820... The first time the word altar is mentioned in Genesis is 8.20. But it is there in chapter 4 by explanation because in order for Abel to have sacrificed an animal, he had to have built an altar. And so it's there implicitly, but explicitly it begins to be uh, mentioned in Genesis chapter 8.20 on until we get to next week and we'll see what happens then. So then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings unto the Lord. And then the Lord appeared to Abram, or Abraham, remember, and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So there's a promise. And so he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And again, what does it have to do with? It has to do with acceptance by God to have fellowship with God. The altar has to do with the work of something happening at the altar so God will accept man in order to forgive man to have fellowship with man. So there are promises here. And then there's an altar. And then there's a sacrifice. There's a shedding of blood. So God says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what must happen in order for this to happen. 
And once this sacrifice occurs, then the good of what I have promised will be in for you. You will begin to experience the good. I promise this. This is the way that the promise must be uh, uh, received by you through the sacrifice. And once you have made the sacrifice by faith, then you can receive and dwell in the good of what that promise is. You, you, you see the step there, the progression. In, in 22 verse 9, you remember when the Lord appeared to Abram and he says in the verse before this he says take your son your only son the son whom you love Isaac I mean the Lord does four different conversations there four different steps four different comments in other words don't take Ishmael take your son well he has two sons your only son. Well, wait a minute. That's not his only son. No, it's the only son of promise. It's the only son through whom the seed of the woman will come. You see how the people are, well, that wasn't the only son. You see, you can't believe the Bible because the Bible has so many inaccuracies in it. Fools. What else can you say to a person who thinks those things? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Your only son. What only son? The son through whom I will bring about the seed of the woman, the promise. The son whom you love. Who is the beloved of God? Even Jesus, remember, in Matthew, you were my beloved son, Isaac. Remember the son who came forth from the barren mother, the, the, the miracle that had to happen, the picture of the virgin birth. Oh, there's just so much there we can't get ahead of ourselves. But you must see in everything that Christ is being shown to be the one who is typed and pictured here. And his work of redemption is the work that is being displayed. You begin to see some of this even as we talk about this one particular verse. And so take your son and go to the mountains that I will show you into the mountains of Moriah. Remember, go to the mountains of Moriah. I have to say this, it's just too good. The mountains of Moriah. Where did Solomon build the temple? The same place. It's great. I mean, it's incredible. Nobody could have put this together, stringing all this stuff together and coming out with such a consistency. Only God can do this. You see, this Bible is the truth. It is the truth, amen? We can trust it. And so he says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, we're going to get back to that to talk about what that what the implications and the type of that mean. And so you see there are just various other altars that are mentioned in the rest of Genesis. So what was happening at these altars? What was going on? <clears throat> Two things were happening. Two things always happen at the altar. Two things always happen at the altar. Now, if you haven't taken a note on that, that says, when the teacher says it three different times, that's going to be on the final exam. Two things always happen at the altar. Two things. What are they? Justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. Justice is poured out so mercy can be received. And at the altar, God's justice, God's righteousness, and his mercy, his love, are embraced, or hand in hand. These two things occur at the altar. Justice and mercy. 
You see, in order for a righteous God to have fellowship with unrighteous man, the unrighteous man must become or be declared or be made in the sight of a righteous God as righteous. Our sins must be laid to the account of another. That another must pay judicially the appropriate price of justice fully so that having been paid, then God, the judge of all, can look at those whose sins have been paid by this other and declare those who were guilty as not guilty. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. You remember in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul delineates, he says, none are righteous, no, not one. You remember that in Romans 3.10. And then from 3.11 to 18, what Paul does is unpack the whole concept or understanding of righteousness and its effect in our lives. Then he says, nobody seeks, nobody understands, and nobody's good. Well, you see, when we get hung up, we think, wait a minute, they're good people on the earth. The understanding, the seeking, and the good are all defined by and are categorized within the understanding of the word righteous. So good, good in accordance with God's righteousness. That kind of good, not man-centered, man-made, man-defined good. What understanding is has nothing to do with what we say it is. It has everything to do with what it is in God being right. In, uh, um, uh, what, what was the other one? No, seeking. Seeking, having nothing to do with what we say it is, but what God says it is, who is righteous. So everything in that context of those verses must be seen within the context of the word righteous. Verse 10 describes and puts parameters around the rest of the verses from 11 to 18. A lot of Christians fall and stumble over these verses because they just don't know how to, and whatever, and I don't know. Well, I know that people say, seek, and people, no. It has to do with what God's righteousness is and what he says. Do we get that this morning? The definition is upon the issue of righteous. God alone is right. Everything about God, everything from God, everything that God does, everything that God does not do, everything of God is totally, completely, comprehensively right. Anything apart from that is what? Unright. Did we get that this morning? We want to be very clear on what the Bible says. Otherwise, the devil comes in and begins to erode our understanding and the necessity of this gospel that we preach and from which we have been, by which we have been saved and which we have to take to the world. We don't want to back down on this. <clears throat> don't back down on it. This is what God hath said. Man is an opposition. He won't like it. He won't understand it. He will reject it and fight against it. But we must stand clear on this. Amen? And so this is what the altar is typing or typifying or showing. This is what the altar is there for to show us 
that God has poured out his punishment upon a sacrificed animal as the type of him who was to come, the seed of the woman. Every time a believer sacrificed an animal, every time an animal or uh, whatever was sacrificed in the temple or the tabernacle, millions and millions of animals, all of this was saying, all of this represents the shedding of the blood of just one man for the propitiation of God's wrath, for the setting aside of the just wrath and anger of a holy God upon us because of our sin. That's what these altars are saying. So every time we see that, we must remember what God is saying in all of this. So he has poured out his punishment on the innocent, who is a type of him who is to come, so that God's mercy then could be poured out upon those whom this innocent represented. He didn't die for his sin. He had no sin. He died for the sin of his people. That's what the altar is showing us. Now, did the Old Testament men and women understand this as we do? No. All they understood was this. God said, sacrifice an animal. And I will remove your sin. I will, you know, move it away from you. That's all he said, Nettie. So they sacrificed an animal. What does that mean? I don't know what it means. All I know is God said it, and I'm doing it because I trust God. Amen? We understand it today because we have the view from the cross, on the other side of the cross, through the resurrection. But all they were getting is, I don't know. All I know is this. God said for me to be acceptable in his sight and have fellowship with him, I must kill this animal, and I'm going to kill this animal. That's all they knew. They got little glimpses here and there, and there were prophets coming, you know, giving some more information, but even the disciples themselves didn't get it. You remember? You remember that? They didn't even get it. It was only gotten an understanding as a result of the resurrection of Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit. So they also show that God's only way of restoring man was through the shedding of innocent blood, Genesis 3.21 the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember John the Baptist when he saw Jesus coming? In John 1, 29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb, what's a Lamb? The Lamb was the principal, not the only, but the principal animal whose blood was shed on these altars. It wasn't the only animal, but it was the principal uh, type of the death and we'll see when we get to Leviticus, it is the specific type of death on the Day of Atonement. But that's, again, another day for another thing. And so all of these altars are prefiguring whom, behold, the Lamb of God, who will go to the altar of God and die for our sin in order to take away our sin. Every altar in the Old Testament, as far as the believers are concerned, there were other altars of unbelievers, you remember, had that to say. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting? I can't say every culture, but I dare say maybe every culture has sacrifices in it. Have you ever noticed that? Why? Well, what was happening as I had it explained to me, was that Judaism just picked up the practice of all these other people and they followed the practice of all these other people and they went along with it. Well, that's an explanation. But could it have been that God set 
in the mind and heart of man through Adam and Eve, the progenitors of the race, because of uh, Genesis 3.21, could it possibly be that man had in his psyche, if you would, that sacrifices had to occur in order for some deity to be appeased or pleased. So everybody's doing it because of that, but that God's people alone do it the right way for the right reason. Could it be that is the explanation? Well, of course it. You see, fools say it's the other way. The people of God have the truth and the revelation. I don't know whether you need to call people like that fools, but, but I'm saying fools in the context of not believing the Word of God. I'm not trying to put people down. I'm talking about fools within the context of rejecting God's Word. Anyone who rejects the Word of God is a fool. Billy, would you agree with that? Yes. Wouldn't we all agree with that? So fools, foolish in that context, rejecting of the Word is the most foolish thing you can do in your life and for eternity. So that's what these altars are telling us. You see, this is what the message, this is what Romans 5.18 tells us. Listen to what Romans 5.18 says. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam sinned. We were in Adam physically through the seed, and when he sinned, we all, being children of Adam, inherited his sin and it became ours personally by inheritance and ours practically by practice. Anybody in here not sinned since you've been born? Anybody in here you had to teach your children to re rebel and to say no and to get upset? <clears throat> it's ours. So it was given to us through inheritance in Adam. So one trespass led to the condemnation. So that one act of righteousness, the cross, the life and the ministry and the cross of Christ leads to justification in life for all men, for all of those who were in Christ, his life, his obedience. God's, it stands for ours because we have been put into Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4. And because of that, when he died, we all died to our old Adamic nature and control and inheritance. And when he rose from the dead, we all rose to a new inheritance in Christ. Amen. If you can't shout, you're not alive today. That's good news. That's what happened. That's the effect of the gospel. So look again. Hebrews 4.11 tells you that. By faith, Abel offered the more acceptable sacrifice. And as a result, what? It was commended to him as righteousness. His sacrifice at the altar was his receiving and cooperating with the work of God as innocent dying for guilty. 
Abel or no one in the Old Testament was making God forgive them. They were cooperating with the work that God said, I am doing. And by their giving the sacrifice, which they had to do at that point, because God gives his own son later to be the priest who does it, they were cooperating and receiving the good of what that sacrifice would entail. It wasn't a work to get forgiveness. It was the work that they were participating in as they were receiving the forgiveness through this sacrifice that God had offered unto them. Did you get that? Do we see how that works? <clears throat> what is the result of all of this? Remember, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake, God made Christ to become sin. What does that mean? Judicially declaring him to be sinful. Who knew no sin. There was no sin in him. Why? So that in him, in him, we were there when Jesus died at the cross. Galatians 5, Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. When Paul said that, he was not there physically in Christ. He was there spiritually in Christ. Amen? And that applies to all of us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. It all has to do with the reestablishment of righteousness in us. Adam had personal righteousness in the garden, which he was to maintain through his obedience. He lost that because of sin. Therefore, another who has personal righteousness must come, fully obey so that in his righteous work of obedience we are included so that our unrighteousness may be forgiven and we may be receiving or be clothed with his own righteousness it's not that we have inherent or righteousness because of us we have it as a gift from god amen we are then declared once we're saved we are declared fully and forever righteous there is nothing we can do to add to this once we are declared righteousness by the work of God in our salvation having received it by faith 5-1 of Romans having been justified by Christ we have peace with God we have been declared by the judge of all the universe who is not a man that he should lie as righteous fully and forever but righteous with the same righteous with the same righteous with the same righteousness of his own son now who can improve on that how many of you think that if you read your Bible you can do better and get more how many of you think that if you tithe hopefully some way you'll improve on your righteousness. How many of you believe that going to Sunday school, mm, oh, I'll use it, going to Sunday school improves on your righteousness? No, 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 no. We have something about us that we think we can improve on righteousness. Come on, raise your hand if you've ever tried this and, and this is a struggle. Come on, we all like that. It's called flesh. So we have to continually say, I can't improve on it. I can't improve on it. It's perfect. Why? It's not mine by nature. It's mine by recreation, 
by inheritance. Amen? So I can say, I am a fully and forever righteous man in Christ. Don't forget that. In Christ. That's what the altars are saying. That's, the, that's what the altars are anticipating. So every time you read about an altar in the Bible that has to do with the sacrifice of an animal for God's cleansing of the sin of his people, remember this. Let's move along. <clears throat> you see, in these altars, God was picturing how he clears the guilty of their guilt without being unjust so that they can become his image bearers. Each of these altars is the picture of the altar of God upon which the seed of the woman, the Lamb of God, will die. Each of these altars is a picture of what? The cross. Can you see and begin to see in each one of these altars, not just, hey, why are they doing this? What's happening there? You know, whatever. Can we begin to see God is saying, the Redeemer is coming. He's the seed of the woman. He's my son, my only son, the son whom I love. And I am going to slay him on the altar in the land of Moriah, outside of Jerusalem, my holy city, for the sin of all my people, so that I and my people may dwell together at the end of the age, when my son returns, bringing with him the new heaven and the new earth as one, that the throne of God may be dwelling among his people, so that God and his people may be truly experiencing Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Can you imagine why? The heavenly host suddenly said, Glory to God in the highest. Finally, the seed is here. Finally, all the types, all the picturing, all the foreshadowing has concluded into this one man in whom everything that God has promised and has shown in these sacrifices will be put, included, and completed in this one man's death so that God's people may dwell with him forever. Is this not an incredible revelation that we have that nobody on the earth even begins to come close to it? Isn't this incredible, church? Do we see the word of God as much larger than maybe we have seen it in the past? And all of it is in seed form in the first 11 chapters of Genesis and unfolds in a mighty way as a great oak tree in the rest of the Old Testament coming into mighty fruition in the New Testament. You see, therefore, the altar was God's first type of several of how he would recover his goal in man. Each of these types pointed to... <clears throat> and gave a greater description of not only who this man is and what kind of a man he would be, but also the issue of the sacrifice and what it entailed and what it would accomplish. 
And so when we get to the tabernacle, we'll see that there are two great works that are accomplished at the altar. They're called, and we've talked about this before, and we'll go into more detail. If you don't get it today, it's okay. Propitiation and expiation. Those are the two great works of God at the altar. Propitiation and expiation. They both come together. Because the wrath is propitiated, our sins are expiated. And we'll see that typed and shown clearly when we get to the tabernacle especially as described in Leviticus. So you see why you have to come back. So next week, what we're going to see is God moving from these movable temporary locations where he and his people had some fellowship and experienced some good times, if you would, that they will move from movable and temporary altars to a more permanent structure in which God will enlarge upon the person and the work of his coming Redeemer. Amen? So come back next week and bring more folks with you. Thank you so much.